Section 61 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Table showing the increase in the productions and commerce of the United Kingdom, from 1801 to 1850. Soap, in pounds weight, 1801, 55,500,000, 1811,80,000,000. Increase 44%. 1821-97Million Increase 21%. 1831-127Million 500,000 Increase 31%. 1841-127Million 500,000 Increase 31%. 1841-170Million 500,000 Increase 34%. 1850-205 million, increase 20%. Total increase 269%. Average annual increase 5.3%. Cotton, in pounds weight, 1801, 56 million. 1811, 92 million, increase 64%. 1821, 137 million, increase 49%. 1831, 273 million and nine, increase 99%. 1841, 437 million, increase 60%. 1850, 664 million 700,000, increase 52%. Total increase 1,087%. Average annual increase 21.7%. Wool in pounds weight, eighteen o one and eighteen eleven no information, eighteen twenty one ten million, eighteen thirty one thirty million, increase two hundred percent, eighteen forty one fifty three million, increase seventy seven percent, eighteen fifty seventy two million six hundred and seventy five thousand, increase thirty seven percent, total increase six hundred and twenty seven percent. Average annual increase, 20.9%. Silk in pounds weight, 1801, 1 million. 1811, 1 million 500,000. Increase, 50%. 1821, 2 million 250,000. Increase, 50%. 1831, 4 million 250,000. Increase, 89%. 1841, 5 million. Increase 18%. 1850, 7,159,000. Increase 43%. Total increase 616%. Average annual increase 12.3%. Flax in pounds weight. 1801 and 1811, no information. 1821, 55 million. 1831, 104 million. Increase 89%. 1841, 151 million. Increase 45%. 1850, 204 million. Increase 35%. Total increase 271%. Average annual increase 9.0%. Hemp in pounds weight. 1801, 1811 and 1821, no information. 1831, 56,500,000. 1811, 
1841, 73 million, increase 29 per cent. 1850, 117,447,000, increase 61 per cent. Total increase 108 per cent. Average annual increase 5.4 per cent. Heights in pounds weight. 1801, 1811, and 1821, no information. Note, the official value was established long ago. It represents a price put upon merchandise or commodities. It is in reality a fixed value and serves to indicate the relative extent of imports and exports in different years. The declared value is simply the marked price. End note. 1801, 24,500,000. 1811,21,750,000. Decrease eleven per cent. Eighteen twenty one forty million two hundred and fifty thousand. Increase eighty five per cent. Eighteen thirty one sixty million. Increase forty nine per cent. Eighteen forty one one hundred and one million seven hundred and fifty thousand. Increase seventy per cent. Eighteen fifty one hundred and ninety seven million three hundred and nine thousand. Increase ninety four per cent. Total increase 705%. Average annual increase 14.1%. Official value of imports in pound sterling. 1801, no information. 1811, 25,500,000. 1821, 29,750,000. Increase 17%. 1831,48,250,000. Increase 62%. 1841,62,750,000. Increase 30%. 1850,100,460,000. Increase 60%. Total increase 294%. Average annual increase 7.3%. Tonnage of vessels belonging to British Empire. 1801 and 1811, no information. 1821, 2,560,203. 1831, 2,581,964. Increase 1%. 1841,3,512,482. Increase 36%. 1850, 4,232,962. Increase 21%. Total increase 65%. Average annual increase 2.2%. Tonnage of vessels entering ports. 1801 and 1811, no information. 1821, 1,895,000. 1831, 3,241,927. Increase 71%. 1841, 4,652,376. Increase 44%. 1850, 7,110,476. Increase 
Total increase 274%. Average annual increase 9.1%. Amount of the property and income of Great Britain. Property assessed to property tax, 1815, 60 million pounds sterling. 1842, 95,250,000. Increase 58%. Annual rate of increase 1.7%. Annual profits of trade, 1815, £37 million pounds sterling, 1844, £60 million, pounds. increase 62%, annual rate of increase 1.7%. Here then, we find that the property assessed to the property tax has increased £35,250,000 in 27 years from 1815 to 1842 or upwards of £1 million sterling a year. This is at the rate of 1.7% every year, whereas the population of Great Britain has increased at the rate of only 1.4% per annum. But the amount of assessment under the property tax, it should be borne in mind, does not represent the full value of the possessions, so that among this class of proprietors there is far greater wealth than the returns show. As regards the annual profits of trade, the increase between the years 1815 and 1844 has been £23 million in 29 years. This is at the rate of 1.7% per annum, and the annual increase in the population of Great Britain is only 1.4%. But the amount of the profits of trade is unquestionably greater than appears in the financial tables of the revenue of the country, Consequently, there is a greater increase of wealth over population than the figures indicate. The above returns show the following results. Population of the United Kingdom increase 0.9% per annum. Productions from 21 to 5% increase per annum. Exports 14% increase per annum. Imports 5% increase per annum. Shipping entering ports, 9% increase per annum. Property, 1.7% increase per annum. Profits of trade, 1.7% increase per annum. Far, very far indeed then, beyond the increase of the population, has been the increase of the wealth and work of the country. And now, after this imposing array of wealth, let us contemplate the reverse of the picture. Let us inquire if... While we have been increasing in riches and productions far more rapidly than we have been increasing in people and producers, let us inquire, I say, if we have been numerically increasing also in the sad long lists of paupers and criminals. Has our progress in poverty and crime been pari passu, or been more than commensurate in the rapidity of its strides? Table showing the number of paupers in England and Wales. Note, the official returns as to the number of paupers are most incomplete and unsatisfactory. In the 10th Annual Report of the Poor Law Commissioners, page 480, 1844, a table is printed which is said to give the returns from the earliest period for which authentic parliamentary documents have been received and this sets forth the number of paupers in England and Wales for the entire twelve months in the years 1803, 1813, 1814 and 1815. 
then comes a long interval of no returns and after eighteen thirty nine we have the numbers for only three months in each year from eighteen forty up to eighteen forty three in the first annual report eighteen forty eight these returns for one quarter in each year are continued up to eighteen forty eight and then we get the returns for only two days in each year the first of july and the first of january so that to come to any conclusion amid so much inconsistency is utterly impossible. The numbers above given would have been continued to the present period could any comparison have been instituted. The numbers for the periods not above given are number of paupers for the entire 12 months, 1803, 1,040,716, 1813,1,426,065, 1814, 1,402,576, 1815,1,319,851. The following are the number of paupers for two separate days in each year. 1849, 1st of January, 940,851, 1st of July, 846,988, 1850, 1st of January, 889,830. 1st of July, 796,318. 1851. 1st of January, 829,440. End note. Number of paupers relieved. Quarters ending Lady Day. 1840. 1,199,529. 1841, 1,299,048. Numerical increase, 99,519. Annual increase, 8%. 1842, 1,427,187. Numerical increase, 128,139. Annual increase, 10%. 1843, 1,539,490. Numerical increase, 112,303. Annual increase, 8%. 1844, 1,477,561. Numerical increase, 938,071. Annual increase, 60%. 1845, 1,470,970. Numerical decrease, 6,591. Annual decrease, 0.4%. 1846, 1,332,089. Numerical decrease, 38,881. Annual decrease, 3%. 1847. 1,721,350. Numerical increase, 389,261. Annual increase, 29%. 1,848, 1,876,541. Numerical increase, 155,191. Annual increase, 9%. Increase percent from 1840 to 1848 equals 56. Annual increase 7%. Here then we have an increase of 56% in less than 10 years. 
though the increase of the population of England and Wales in the same time was but 13%, and let it be remembered that the increase of upwards of 650,000 paupers in nine years has accrued since the new poor law has been in what may be considered full working, a law which many were confident would result in a diminution of pauperism, and which certainly cannot be charged with offering the least encouragement to it. Still, in nine years, our poverty increases while our wealth increases, and our paupers grow nearly four times as quick as our people, while the profits on trade nearly double themselves in little more than a quarter of a century. We now come to the records of criminality. Table showing the increase in the number of criminals in England and Wales from 1805 to 1850. Annual average number of criminals committed 1805, 4,605. 1811, 5,375. Numerical increase, 770. Decennial increase, 17%. Annual increase, 2.8%. 1821, 9,783. Numerical increase, 4,408. Decennial increase, 82%. Annual increase, 8.2%. 1831, 15,318. Numerical increase, 5,535. Decennial increase, 57%. Annual increase, 5.7%. 1841, 22,305. Numerical increase, 6,987. Decennial increase, 46%. Annual increase, 4.6%. 1850, 27,814. Numerical increase, 5,509. Decennial increase, 25%. Annual increase, 3.6%. Increase in the 43 years, 504%. Annual average increase, 11.7%. From these results, and such figures are facts, and therefore stubborn things, the people cannot be said to have increased beyond the wealth or the means of employing them, for it is evident that we increase in poverty and crime as we increase in wealth, and in both far beyond our increase in numbers. The above are the bare facts of the country, it is for the reader to explain them as he pleases. As yet, we have dealt with those causes of casual labour only which may induce a surplusage of labourers without any decrease taking place in the quantity of work. We have seen first how the number of the unemployed may be increased either by altering the hours, rate or mode of working, or else by changing the term of hiring and this while the number of labourers remains the same. And secondly, we have seen how the same results may ensue from increasing the number of labourers while the conditions of working and hiring are unaltered. Under both these circumstances, however, the actual quantity of work to be done in the country has been supposed to undergo no change whatever, and at present we have to point out not only how the amount of surplus and consequently of casual labour in the kingdom, may be increased by a decrease of the work, but also how the work itself may be made to decrease. 
To know the causes of the one, we must ascertain the antecedents of the other. What then are the circumstances inducing a decrease in the quantity of work? And consequently, what the circumstances inducing an increase in the amount of surplus and casual labour? In the first place, we may induce a large amount of casual labour in particular districts, not by decreasing the gross quantity of work required by the country, but by merely shifting the work into new quarters, and so decreasing the quantity in the ordinary localities. The West of England, says Mr. Dodd, in his account of the textile manufactures of Great Britain, was formerly, and continued to be, till a comparatively recent period, the most important clothing district in England. The changes which the woollen manufacture, as respects both localisation and mode of management, has been and is now undergoing, are very remarkable. Some years ago, the West of England cloths were the test of excellence in this manufacture, while the productions of Yorkshire were deemed of a coarser and cheaper character. At present, although the western counties have not deteriorated in their product, the West Riding of Yorkshire has made giant strides, by which equal skill in every department has been attained, while the commercial advantages resulting from coal mines, from water power, from canals and railroads, and from vicinage to the eastern port of Hull and the western port of Liverpool, give to the West Riding a power which Gloucestershire and Somersetshire cannot equal. The steam engine too, and various machines for facilitating some of the manufacturing processes, have been more readily introduced into the former than into the latter, a circumstance which, even without reference to other points of comparison, is sufficient to account for much of the recent advance in the north. Of late years, the products of many of the West of England clothing districts have considerably declined. Shepton Mallet, Frome, and Trowbridge, for instance, which were at one time the seats of a flourishing manufacture for cloth, have now but little employment for the workmen in those parts, and so with other towns. At several places in Wiltshire, Somersetshire, and Gloucestershire, and others of the western counties, says Mr Thornton, most of the cottagers, fifty years ago, were weavers, whose chief dependence was their looms, though they worked in the field at harvest time and other busy seasons. By so doing, they kept down the wages of agricultural labourers, who had no other employment, and now that they have themselves become dependent upon agriculture, in consequence of the removal of the woollen manufacture from the cottage to the factory, note, as well as to the north of England, end note, these reduced wages have become their own portion also. Or, in other words, since the shifting of the woollen manufacture in these parts, the quantity of casual labour in the cultivation of the land has been augmented. The same effect takes place, of course, if the work be shifted to the continent, instead of merely to another part of our own country. This has been the main cause of the misery of the straw platters of Buckinghamshire and Bedfordshire. During the last war, says the author before quoted, there were examples of women, the wives and children of labouring men, earning as much as 22 shillings a week. The profits of this employment have been so much reduced by the competition of leghorn hats and bonnets that a straw platter cannot earn much more than 2 shillings sixpence in the week. 
but the work of particular localities may not only decrease and the casual labour in those parts increase in the same proportion by shifting it to other localities either at home or abroad even while the gross quantity of work required by the nation remains the same but the quantity of work may be less than ordinary at a particular time even while the same gross quantity annually required undergoes no change this is the case in those periodical gluts which arise from overproduction in the cotton and other trades the manufacturers in such cases have been increasing the supplies at a too rapid rate in proportion to the demand of the markets so that though there be no decrease in the requirements of the country there ultimately accrues such a surplus of commodities beyond the wants and means of the people that the manufacturers are compelled to stop producing until such time as the regular demand carries off the extra supply and during all this time either the labourers have to work half-time at half-pay, or else they are thrown out of employment altogether. Thus far we have proceeded in the assumption that the actual quantity of work required by the nation does not decrease in the aggregate, but only in particular places or at particular times, owing to a greater quantity than usual being done in other places or at other times. Note, it might at first appear that when the work is shifted to the continent, there would be a proportionate decrease of the aggregate quantity at home, but a little reflection will teach us that the foreigners must take something from us in exchange for their work, and so increase the quantity of our work in certain respects, as much as they depress it in others. End note. We have still to consider what are the circumstances which tend to diminish the gross quantity of work required by the country. To understand these, we must know the conditions on which all work depends. These are simply the conditions of demand and supply, and hence to know what it is that regulates the demand for commodities, and what it is that regulates the supply of them is also to know what it is that regulates the quantity of work required by the nation. Let me begin with the decrease of work arising from a decrease of the demand for certain commodities. This decrease of demand may proceed from one of three causes. 1. An increase of cost. 2. A change of taste or fashion. 3. A change of circumstances. The increase of cost may be brought about either by an increase in the expense of production or by a tax laid upon the article, as in the case of hair powder before quoted. Of the change of taste or fashion, as a means of decreasing the demand for a certain article of manufacture and consequently of a particular form of labour, many instances have already been given. To these the following may be added. In Dorsetshire, says Mr. Thornton, the making of wire shirt buttons, now in a great measure superseded by the use of mother-of-pearl, once employed great numbers of women and children. So it has been with the manufacture of metal coat buttons. The change to silk has impoverished hundreds. The decrease of work arising from a change of circumstances may be seen in the fluctuations of the iron trade. In the railway excitement, the demand for labour in the iron districts was at least tenfold as great as it is at present, and so again with the demand for arms during wartime. 
At such periods, the quantity of work in that particular line at Birmingham is necessarily increased, while the contrary effects, of course, ensue immediately the requirements cease, and a large mass of surplus and casual hands is the result. It is the same with the soldiers themselves, as with the gun and sword makers. On the disbanding of certain portions of the army at the conclusion of a war, a vast amount of surplus labourers are poured into the country to compete with those already in work, and either to drag down their weekly earnings, or else, by obtaining casual employment in their stead, to reduce the gross quantity of work accruing to each, and so to render their incomes not only less in amount, but less constant and regular. Within the last few weeks, no less than 1,000 policemen employed during the exhibition have been discharged, of course with a like result to the labour market. The circumstances tending to diminish the supply of certain commodities are 1. Want of capital 2. Want of materials 3. Want of labourers 4. Want of opportunity The decrease of the quantity of capital in a trade may be brought about by several means. It may be produced by a want of security felt among the moneyed classes, as at the time of revolutions, political agitations, commercial depressions or panics. Or it may be produced by a deficiency of enterprise after the bursting of certain commercial bubbles, or the decline of particular manias for speculation, as on the cessation of the railway excitement. So again, it may be brought about by a failure of the ordinary produce of the year, as with bad harvests. The decrease of the quantity of materials, as tending to diminish the supply of certain commodities, may be seen in the failure of the cotton crops, which of course deprive the cotton manufacturers of their ordinary quantity of work. The same diminution in the ordinary supply of particular articles ensues when the men engaged in the production of them strike, either for an advance of wages, or more generally to resist the attempt of some cutting employer to reduce their ordinary earnings. And lastly, a like decrease of work necessarily ensues when the opportunity of working is changed. Some kinds of work, as we have already seen, depend on the weather, on either the wind, rain or temperature while other kinds can only be pursued at certain seasons of the year, as brick-making, building and the like. Hence, on the cessation of the opportunities for working in these trades, there is necessarily a great decrease in the quantity of work, and consequently a large increase in the amount of surplus and therefore casual labour. We have now, I believe, exhausted the several causes of that vast national evil, casual labour. We have seen that it depends, first, upon certain times and seasons, fashions and accidents, which tend to cause a periodical briskness or slackness in different employments, and secondly, upon the number of surplus labourers in the country. The circumstances inducing surplus labour we have likewise ascertained to be three. One, an alteration in the hours, rate or mode of working, as well as in the mode of hiring. 2. An increase of the hands. 3. A decrease of the work, either in particular places at particular times, or in the aggregate, owing to a decrease either in the demand or means of supply. 
any one of these causes, it has been demonstrated, must necessarily tend to induce an oversupply of labourers, and consequently a casualty of labour. For it has been pointed out that an oversupply of labourers does not depend solely on an increase of the workers beyond the means of working, but that a decrease of the ordinary quantity of work, or a general increase of the hours or rate of working, or an extension of the system of production, or even a diminution of the term of hiring, will also be attended with the same result, facts which should be borne steadily in mind by all those who would understand the difficulties of the times, and which the economists invariably ignore. On a careful revision of the whole of the circumstances before detailed, I am led to believe that there is considerable truth in the statement lately put forward by the working classes that only one-third of the operatives of this country are fully employed, while another third are partially employed, and the remaining third wholly unemployed. That is to say, estimating the working classes as being between four and five millions in number, I think we may safely assert, considering how many depend for their employment on particular times, seasons, fashions and accidents, and the vast quantity of overwork and scamp work in nearly all the cheap trades of the present day, the number of women and children who are being continually drafted into the different handicrafts with the view of reducing the earnings of the men, the displacement of human labour in some cases by machinery, and the tendency to increase the division of labour and to extend the large system of production beyond the requirements of the markets, as well as the temporary mode of hiring. All these things being considered, I say, I believe, we may safely conclude that out of the 4,500,000 people who have to depend on their industry for the livelihood of themselves and families, there is, owing to the extraordinary means of economising labour which have been developed of late years, and the discovery as to how to do the work of the nation with fewer people, barely sufficient work for the regular employment of half of our labourers, so that only 1,500,000 are fully and constantly employed, while 1,500,000 more are employed only half their time, and the remaining 1,500,000 wholly unemployed obtaining a day's work occasionally by the displacement of some of the others. Adopt what explanation we will of this appalling deficiency of employment. One thing at least is certain. We cannot consistently with the facts of the country ascribe it to an increase of the population beyond the means of labour. For we have seen that while the people have increased during the last 50 years at the rate of 0.9% per annum, the wealth and productions of the kingdom have far exceeded that amount. Of the casual labourers among the rubbish carters The casual labour of so large a body of men as the rubbish carters is a question of high importance, for it affects the whole unskilled labour market, and this is one of the circumstances distinguishing unskilled from skilled labour. Unemployed cabinet makers, for instance, do not apply for work to a tailor, so that with skilled labourers only one trade is affected in the slack season by the scarcity of employment among its operatives. With unskilled labourers it is otherwise. 
If in the course of next week 100 rubbish carters were from any cause to be thrown out of employment and found an impossibility to obtain work at rubbish carting, there would be 100 fresh applicants for employment among the bricklayers, labourers, scavengers, nightmen, sewermen, dock workers, lumpers and so on. Many of the 100 thus unemployed would of course be willing to work at reduced wages merely that they might subsist and thus the hands employed by the regular and honourable part of those trades are exposed to the risk of being underworked, as regards wages, from the surplusage of labour in other unskilled occupations. The employment of the rubbish carters depends in the first instance upon the season. The services of the men are called into requisition when houses are being built or removed. In the one case, the rubbish carters cart away the refuse earth, in the other, they remove the old materials. The brisk season for the builders, and consequently for the rubbish carters, is, as I heard several of them express it, when days are long. From about the middle of April to the middle of October is the brisk season of the rubbish carters, for during those six months more buildings are erected than in the winter half of the year. There is an advantage in fine weather in the masonry becoming set, and efforts are generally made to complete at least the carcass of a house before the end of October at the latest. I am informed that the difference in the employment of labourers about buildings is 30%. One builder estimated it at 50%, less in winter than in summer, from the circumstance of fewer buildings being then in the course of erection. It may be thought that as rubbish carters are employed frequently on the foundation of buildings, their business would not be greatly affected by the season or the weather. But the work is often more difficult in wet weather, the ground being heavier, so that a smaller extent of work only can be accomplished compared to what can be done in fine weather. And an employer may decline to pay six days' wages for work in winter, which he might get done in five days in summer. If the men work by the piece or the load, the result is the same. The rubbish carter's employer has a smaller return, for there is less work to be charged to the customer, while the cost in keeping the horses is the same. Thus it appears that, under the most favourable circumstances, about one-fourth of the rubbish carters, even in the honourable trade, may be exposed to the evils of non-employment, merely from the state of the weather influencing, more or less, the custom of the trade and this even during the six months' employment out of the year, after which the men must find some other means of earning a livelihood. There are in round numbers 850 operative rubbish carters employed in the brisk season throughout the metropolis. Hence 212 men at this calculation would be regularly deprived of work every year for six months out of the twelve. It will be seen, however, on reference to the table here given, that the average number of weeks each of the rubbish carters is employed throughout the 12 months is far below 26. Indeed, many have but three and four weeks' work out of the 52. By an analysis of the returns I have collected on this subject, I find the following to have been the actual term of employment for the several rubbish carters in the course of last year. Nine men had 39 weeks' employment, or nine months. 214 men had 26 weeks' employment, or 6 months. 
Four men had 20 weeks' employment, or five months. Ten men had 18 weeks' employment. 28 men had 16 weeks' employment, or four months. Eight men had 14 weeks' employment. 353 had 13 weeks' employment, or three months. Four men had 12 weeks' employment. 34 had 10 weeks' employment. 29 had 9 weeks' employment. 38 had 8 weeks' employment, or 2 months. 38 had 6 weeks' employment. 27 had 5 weeks' employment. 45 had 4 weeks' employment, or 1 month. 15 had 3 weeks' employment. Total number of men, 856. Hence, about one-fourth of the trade appear to have been employed for six months, while upwards of one-half had work for only three months or less throughout the year, many being at work only three days in the week during that time. The rubbish carter is exposed to another casualty, over which he can no more exercise control than he can over the weather. I mean, to what is generally called speculation, or a rage for building. This is evoked by the state of the money market, and other causes upon which I need not dilate. But the effect of it upon the labourers I am describing is this. Capitalists may in one year embark sufficient means in building speculations to erect, say, 500 new houses in any particular district. In the following year, they may not erect more than 200, if any. And thus, as there is the same extent of unskilled labour in the market, the number of hands required is, if the trade be generally less speculative, less in one year than in its predecessor by the number of rubbish carters required to work at the foundations of 300 houses. Such a cause may be exceptional, but during the last 10 years, the inhabited houses in the five districts of the Registrar-General have increased to the extent of 45,000 or from 262,737 in 1841 to 307,722 in 1851. It appears then that the annual increase of our metropolitan houses, concluding that the increase in a regular yearly ratio, is 4,500. Last year, however, as I am informed by an experienced builder, there were rather fewer buildings erected he spoke only from his own observations and personal knowledge of the business, than the yearly average of the decennial term. The casual and constant wages of the rubbish carters may be thus detailed. The whole system of the labour, I may again state, must be regarded as casual, or, as the word imports in its derivation from the Latin casus, a chance, the labour of men who are occasionally employed. Some of the most respectable and industrious rubbish carters with whom I met told me they generally might make up their minds, though they might have excellent masters, to be six months of the year unemployed at rubbish carting. This, too, is less than the average of this chance employment. Calculating, then, the rubbish carter's receipt of nominal wages at 18 shillings and his actual wages at 20 shillings in the honourable trade, I find the following amount to be paid. By nominal wages, I have before explained, I mean what a man is said to receive, or has been promised that he shall be paid weekly. Actual wages, on the other hand, are what a man positively receives, 
there being sometimes additions in the form of perquisites or allowances, sometimes deductions in the way of fines and stoppages. The additions in the rubbish carting trade appear to average about two shillings a week, but these actual wages are received only so long as the men are employed, that is to say, they are the casual rather than the constant earnings of the men working at a trade which is essentially of an occasional or temporary character, the average employment at rubbish carting being only three months in the year. Let us see, therefore, what would be the constant earnings or income of the men working at the better-paid portion of the trade. The gross actual wages of 10 rubbish carters casually employed for 39 weeks at 20 shillings per week amount to £390. The gross actual wages of 250 rubbish carters casually employed for 26 weeks at 20 shillings per week, £6,500. The gross actual wages of 360 rubbish carters casually employed for 13 weeks at 20 shillings per week, £4,600. Total gross actual wages of 620 of the better paid rubbish carters, £11,490. But this, as I said before, represents only the casual wages of the better paid operatives. That is to say, it shows the amount of money, or money's worth, that is positively received by the men while they are in employment. To understand what are the constant wages of these men, we must divide their gross casual earnings by 52, the number of weeks in the year. Thus we find the constant wages of the 10 men who were employed for 39 weeks were 15 shillings instead of 20 shillings per week. That is to say, their wages equally divided throughout the year would have yielded that constant weekly income. By the same reasoning, the 20 shillings per week casual wages of the 250 men employed for 26 weeks out of the 52 were equal to only 10 shillings constant weekly wages. And so the 360 men who had 20 shillings per week casually for only three months in the year had but five shillings a week constantly throughout the whole year. Hence we see the enormous difference there may be between a man's casual and his constant earnings at a given trade. The next question which forces itself on the mind is, how do the rubbish carters live when no longer employed at this kind of work? When the slack season among the rubbish carters commences, nearly one-fifth of the operatives are discharged. These take to scavenging or dustman's work, as well as that of navigators, or indeed any form of unskilled labour, some obtaining full employ, but the greater part being able to get a job only now and then. Those masters who keep their men on throughout the year are some of them large dust contractors, some carmen, some dairymen, and in one or two instances in the suburbs, as at Hackney, small farmers. The dust contractors and carmen, who are by far the more numerous, find employment for the men employed by them as rubbish carters in the season, either at the dust yard or carrying sand, or indeed carting any materials they may have to move, the wages to the men remaining the same. Indeed, such is the transient character of the rubbish carting trade that there are no masters or operatives who devote themselves solely to the business. End of section 61